So we're in Matthew chapter 6 today, and um, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we want to walk humbly before you. We want our love for you to be authentic and real, and not just for us to say that our love for you is authentic and real. Would you use this word today to help us be rightly spiritually fit, fitted by you for service, for worship to you. Create a new desire in us all to know and experience you, God. To know that you are faithful to us. Even as we seek to be faithful to you. To know that you love us, even as we seek to love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Matthew 6. We will begin in verse 16. And this is Jesus speaking. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. And so we continue our series entitled, Pray First. And the goal of this series is to help us get ready to wage spiritual war in 2017. Now, you may be here exploring the Christian faith and be wondering, uh, why would you want to wage war? That sounds strange to me. And the answer is that our world is a mess. I think we can all agree with, on that. Internationally, the scene is a mess. Domestically, we're not doing much better. And so rather than lashing out at those who oppose us, who think differently from us, who look differently from us, who have more or less than us, rather than picking up physical weapons to hurt them or verbal weapons to put them down, demean them, belittle them, tear them down, destroy them, we take a different approach. And our approach is to strengthen our inner self. That's why we wage this war at this spiritual level. We do not want to tear down or destroy. We want to build up and offer life. So we take up spiritual weapons and prayer is one of those. And we heard a great sermon from Bo last week on prayer. And we gave you a journal, a prayer journal. And I've heard from a number of you who've been using it and how it's been helping you. And I hope all of you will continue to do that this week. We also had our seven Facebook Live events on prayer, and the goal there was for us to be able to continue to pray together, even if we were not in the same building. And it was a ton of fun to do those uh, with you. And then tonight we have our 5 p.m. prayer meeting right here. Can I just encourage you to come? Would you just come? You know, when we say there's a prayer event, we might have as well have said, the government's gonna be here tonight at 5 p.m. collecting taxes, because you hide, you don't come. No, come. Come and pray. Let it be wild. Bring your children. It's the beginning of the year. The gyms are packed. And we're trying to get spiritually fit in here, exercising our spiritual muscles. We want to be a church of prayer. Now today we pick up another spiritual weapon, and that's fasting. Fasting. You know, fasting means that you go without food so you can hunger for God. 
You go without food so you can hunger for God. This is not about starving yourself. This is about seeking after God. And you know, the scripture that we read, it's Jesus speaking. But we have a problem within the first four words of that verse we read. And when you fast. Actually, we have a problem within the first two words. And when. You see, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says, and when you fast, but we don't. We're his disciples and we don't fast. We don't go without food so we can hunger for God. You know, during one of those Facebook Live events, I mentioned that the average Christian prays less than five minutes a day, which is sad, but at least they're praying a little. But the average Christian does not fast. And this is convicting to me because the amount of fasting that I've done in the last 10 years is less than the amount of fasting I did my first 10 years as a Christian. That's not a good trajectory. And so we have a problem because Jesus says, when you fast, he's assuming that his disciples will fast and we don't. And there's a number of reasons why we don't. One of them is that we love food. (laughs) We just love food. Human beings love food, but Americans love food. You know, as part of welcoming new members into our congregation, which is always such a treat for us as a church, as part of that official welcome, we invite them over to my house uh, right after the service to have lunch. You know, but if we were inviting them over uh, for a fast, (laughs) it would not be as fun. It just would not be. I mean, I'm assuming they'd still show up, but it would not be as fun. You know, I mean, with all the soups that I know Anna's making and just so good in the cold and all of that, we love food. And so Jesus assumes that his disciples are going to fast, but we don't. We love food. We also don't fast because we're spiritually lethargic. We don't share the same sense of desperation for the unspiritual, unjust condition of our country that the Old Testament prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself had for their fellow humans. We feel like, oh, we like things to be different, but oh well. We also don't fast because the church doesn't teach much about it, and that's our fault. And so hopefully this sermon will go a ways toward redressing that problem. So are you ready? Fasting. Fasting, going without food so you can hunger for God. Jesus says, and when you fast, Don't do it this way, do it this way, but we don't do it at all, so we have to backtrack so that we can see what fasting is and why we should do it, and then we can look at the how. How do we fast once we're doing it, okay? So you have a lot of scriptures coming your way, but stay in Matthew. You can just jot them down if you want to look them up later. So fasting, fasting is not just a Christian thing. All kinds of people, for all kinds of reasons, fast. Many people fast for political reasons. You may be familiar with hunger strikes, not to be confused with hunger games, right? But there are hunger strikes, and one notable, uh, for political reasons, one notable example of this is Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of the nonviolent independence movement in British-ruled India. Other people fast for religions reasons across many religions, Jews during Yom Kippur, Muslims during Ramadan, Hindus during Ikadashi and other festivals. So like prayer, fasting is practiced across many religions throughout the world. Many people also fast for health reasons. Especially this time of the year, you can find all kinds of websites that will tell you to cut out all sugars and flowers and to blend a carrot, a zucchini, a beet, and amazing things are going to happen in your gut, both your external gut and your internal gut. 
And so here's the question. If so many people fast for political, religious, and health reasons, why should Christians fast? Do we just do it because everybody else does it? So hold on to that. Now what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do a quick overview of fasting throughout the Old Testament up to the time of Jesus. And what we're going to see is that the people of God fasted during desperate times urgent times. Fasting was associated with mourning, with affliction. Fasting was a way for you to humble yourself or for the nation to humble themselves before God. Just a few examples. In the book of Judges, this is about 1,100 years before Christ, it was a time of spiritual decline for Israel. Pretty much all of the Judges shows us this. And the tribe of Benjamin committed some, uh, committed some heinous crimes. And so, and they didn't punish the perpetrators. So the rest of Israel finds out and they tell Benjamin, you have to take care of this, but they won't. And so the whole, the rest of the tribes come together to fight Benjamin, to take on the honor of God and fight for righteousness and what is right and good. But the problem is that the first two days of fighting, Benjamin's beating them down by the thousands And so Israel, we read in Judges 20, verse 26, then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So they fasted and they asked God, should we continue this fight? And the Lord tells them, yes, tomorrow I'm giving you the victory. Later on in 1 Samuel, Israel is under attack from the Philistines. Now, Israel had been completely, utterly unfaithful to God. They had gone after many false gods. And so God sends them the prophet Samuel, who both rebukes them, but also tells them he's going to intercede for them. He says, I'm going to pray for you. And then in 1 Samuel 7, 6, we read, So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Now, this next one is King David, and he did something egregious. Many of you are familiar with this episode. He took the one of his most loyal men. He had sex with her, and she became pregnant. And to try to cover all up, he did many things, ending up with having this man killed. And he takes the woman into his house, and the child is born. But the whole episode was utterly displeasing to the Lord. And so in 2 Samuel 12, 15, we read, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. So here we see David fasting and praying and asking God to spare the child, but the child dies. It's amazing, however, how kind God is. He gives them another child to David and the woman, and that's King Solomon. The kindness of God to us in spite of our sin. Amazing. A whole sermon of itself. Now, this next episode I love. This is getting closer to the time of Jesus. This is roughly 450 years before Christ. And Ezra had secured permission from the king of Persia to take a wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. But the trip, the journey is perilous as they're coming across and taking their families and their little ones and their goods. And so what we read is Ezra 8.21. Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, 
that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, uh, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. This is great. So he goes and he secures from the king this permission, but he doesn't want to ask him for soldiers and horsemen because they've told him, God is with us. And so now they're like, uh, we really need you to be with us, Lord. And so he, they fast and God listened. Another episode, right from roughly the same time, the Jews are in Persia under Persian control, and they uh, get in trouble because they have this enemy, Haman, who wants to see them annihilated. And so he gets the king to issue an edict to annihilate all the Jews in the provinces of his kingdom. They're in trouble. Now Esther was a Jew, and she comes into power, although it was limited power. She becomes queen. But under Persian law, no one, not even the queen, could come into the presence of the king without being summoned. But she gets, she musters the courage she needs and she goes in anyway, but she sends this message to her people. It's one of the most famous verses in Esther, Esther 4.16. She says, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's amazing, right? And then finally we have, uh, this is when Jesus is a baby. Uh, and we read about this woman. And I love this woman for a number of reasons. You'll see why. But in Luke 2.36 we read, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So this woman, Anna, has been praying and fasting for over half a century, waiting for the Messiah. But don't you get a sense, as we listen to all those episodes, and that's just a handful, don't you get a sense that the people of God fasted during desperate times, urgent times. Fasting was associated with mourning and with affliction and with sin. Fasting was a way for oneself or the nation to humble themselves before God and entreat him to act. And when you looked at those examples that span about 1,100 years all the way up until the time of Christ. And so at the time of Jesus, when he comes on the scene, and I want you to hear this, devout Jews gave alms, prayed, and fasted. And Jesus expected his disciples to continue doing those things, but to do them from a new heart and from a new moment in history. This is so important. This is something they did as a practice of their devotion to God. And Jesus doesn't say, don't do those things anymore. No, he expects them to continue to do them, but from a new heart and understanding that a new moment in history has arrived. So go to Matthew 9. Because we're going to look briefly, perhaps, at the most important text in Scripture on fasting. So important that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, 
why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, they fast, they fasted, they came to Jesus, and they see that his disciples don't fast, and they're like, what's going on? How come we're doing this and your disciples aren't? And Jesus answers with this image. He says, well, can the wedding guests mourn, be sad, while the bridegroom's still with them? The day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. What's his point? His point is, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. It's a time of joy. I'm the bridegroom come for his bride. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of feasting, not fasting. It's not a time of mourning. It's not a time of affliction. The bridegroom is here. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God is in a number of places referred to as a bridegroom, as a husband. For example, in Isaiah 62, verse 5, it says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The prophets many times speak of a time when God will come himself to his people who find themselves in a state of widowhood, afraid and confounded. And the prophets say, fear not, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel Redeemer. The prophets say there's a time coming when God himself is coming to redeem you. A time is coming when God himself is coming as your bridegroom to take his bride. And so Jesus shows up many years later and says, I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. I've come to take my bride. It's a time to rejoice, to celebrate. The fulfillment of God's promises is finally here. No more reason for his people to be afraid or confounded. Isn't that amazing? He came. But then he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. Did you see that? Do you see those words in Matthew 9, 14, 15? Those are the four words that I want you to remember from this whole sermon. Then they will fast. That's it. That's where it is. So yes, the bridegroom has come. And while he was on the earth, his people was a time for his people to see death and injustice and illness and spiritual oppression rolled back. They saw with their very own eyes the blind see and the lame walk and the dead rise. The things that Jesus did on the earth when, while he was here is as close as the human race has ever gotten and will ever get to experience what life is like in God's full presence, which is the future that the church is moving to in the new earth. So we will have that again, except better. Because the bridegroom will come back and all sin and death and evil will be completely undone. So he's coming back. But the visit of the bridegroom did not end in a honeymoon, but in a funeral. We gotta get, we gotta know this. 
When the bridegroom came the first time, it did not end in a honeymoon. It ended in a funeral because the bridegroom had to take care of the problem of sin. He had to deal with it, which was something that they did not understand at all. Not the Jews, not his disciples. It it took a while. It took the resurrection, actually, for them to understand what did just happen to the Messiah. He had to come first and take care of the problem of sin. Did you see how often in those examples that we looked at from the Old Testament, the people of God fasted because of sin, either their own or someone else's. In Judges, the people, the tribes are at war with each other. This is a civil war of brother against brother because of the sin of Benjamin. In Samuel, the people of God have gone after false gods and so they fasted. And they say, we have sinned against the Lord. David committed horrible crimes, adultery, homicide. And so he fasted as he was coming back to God. Ezra, Ezra secured permission. He he secured passage to the people, to the exiles back to Jerusalem. But why were the exiles exiles to begin with? Sin. The land had vomited them out. As Deuteronomy warned them, Esther, the whole people was in danger of being annihilated because of the sin of an enemy of the people of God. Do you see? The people of God had often fasted because of sin, either their own or someone else's. And so Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm the bridegroom. I've come to have my wife, my bride, but before I can have my wedding, I have to die. I have to take care of the problem of sin. I have to go and die so that my bride will be free and forgiven and purified. And then I'll come back and take her to myself forever. Isn't that amazing? And so he says, when I'm taken away, then they will fast, my disciples. You see, while he was here, we got to know him and enjoy him and fall in love with him. But now he's away and all is not well. All is not okay. Because even though Jesus died on the cross and God lives outside of time so that what Jesus accomplished on the cross to defeat sin and evil and death is done. It's finished. We live in time. And so it's now our time to live like we're waiting for the bridegroom and like we understand that the world is a mess, that sin and death and evil still ravage billions of people. I mean, there's 5.5 people in Syria right now without water because the water reserves are under rebel territory. And so we understand that between the bridegroom coming the first time and doing what he did on the cross and his return, all this intervening time, things are not all well. And so we understand that the conquest of the cross spreads to every corner of the world through our mourning, our affliction, our humbling ourselves before God. That's why we fast. But we understand that it's a new time in history because he did come and he finished the work and he will come back for us. And so we fast during this time because we're waiting for him. So fasting is appropriate for Christians. It is appropriate for us to go without food so we can hunger for God, hunger for the return 
of the bridegroom. And so we can now answer the what and why questions of fasting. What is fasting? Fasting is to go without food so you can hunger for God, so you can hunger for the bridegroom. And why do we fast? Because we're waiting for our bridegroom and he told us to fast while he was away. See, Jesus invites us to fast, to maintain a healthy relationship with God and not give in to spiritual apathy. And so let's look at the how. How do we fast? Go back to Matthew 6. We're going to look at three quick things. Matthew 6, how do we fast? Three things. Number one, fast relationally, not religiously. Matthew 6, 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So during Jesus' time, many Jews fasted, but the fasting of some was not pleasing to God because their motive was impure. See, their fasting was to be seen by others. So their religion was not about God. It was about impressing their fellow man with their spiritual discipline and uh, religious devotion. And Jesus says, don't fast for that motive or with that reason. Don't do it. You see, there's a warning. There's a warning that's given to us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 8. And in the context, he's not talking about fasting, but it applies all the same. 1 Corinthians 8, 8. Listen to what Paul says. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. You see, when it comes to food and God, there are two extremes to avoid. One of the extremes is the extreme of self-indulgence, saying that, well, food is a gift from God, which it is, to be received with thanksgiving, which we're to do, and therefore, I should be able to eat however I want, however much, whenever. Self-indulgence. The other extreme is self-denial. And this is the route that many Christians have taken throughout history, the, the, root, the way of asceticism, the belief that through harsh treatment of the body and rigorous discipline, we can achieve a high spiritual state. And so the way of self-indulgence glorifies freedom. The way of self-denial glorifies willpower. And neither one is the gospel. Because you see, the gospel says, the bridegroom has come. The bridegroom has come, and he has accomplished the victory over sin and death, and therefore, what, whether I eat or don't eat, or what I eat or what I don't eat, does not commend me to God. What commends me to God is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his power for my good. Do you see? So it's so important. So we go back to the original question. If what commends me before God is Jesus, not food, then why fast? Why fast at all? And the answer is that we fast because our bridegroom is away. And fasting is a test. It's a test to see whether we're really waiting for him or only saying we're waiting for him. Let's press this in. See, fasting reveals really quickly how spiritually weak we are, what desires drive us. Because you see, we medicate pain with food. 
And I'm not just talking about people that we would say have a food problem. I'm talking about all of us. All of us do this. Here's what happens. We feel angry, sad, afraid, anxious, irritable, many other things. And these feelings grow. We feel them more and more. But then what do we do? We eat. We have breakfast. And then four or five hours later, we have lunch. And then four or five hours later, we have dinner, and we have snacks in between. And what happens to all those feelings that we were having? We feel better. Many go away. So we medicate them. This is what happens to all of us. What would happen if you feel angry or sad, anxious, irritable, afraid? What would happen if you're feeling all of that and you don't eat? You skip a meal or two or three or three days of meals like Esther and her people did. What would happen then? then those feelings will continue to grow. And now you're hangry, right? We had a friend that always said that, I'm hangry. She was hungry and angry together. But that's what's happening. Now we're craving. Now I become angry John, fearful John, anxious John. And so these feelings are growing and we're craving food, and yes, we're feeling weak, but it's not just our bodies. You see, fasting squeezes what's inside of us, and it brings it out. So that if you're full of lust, or jealousy, or greed, or anger, or whatever it is, it will come out during fasting, and it'll be magnified. And so now you have a problem, right? Because you're hungry, you're feeling all these things, rage or anger or sadness or anxiety, whatever it is, but there's no food. And so you have a problem in your hands, and the problem comes with a question. And the question is, is there another kind of food that can win over the hunger and give you joy? And the answer is there is. There is another kind of food that can satisfy you far beyond what physical food does. Listen to the psalmist. Psalm 63, it's an amazing psalm. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a land, a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Did you hear that last line? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. There is a satisfaction of soul that feels very much like the satisfaction of food but better. And it comes from beholding God's power and glory and filling up our lips and our lives with praise toward God. And what fasting does is it shows you, have you ever tasted that kind of satisfaction? And my concern 
for many of you as your pastor, so many of you have never tasted God like this. Listen to Jesus. It's an incredible episode in John 4 where the disciples are looking for food. They're always hungry. They're walking so much, doing ministry left and right. And so at some point they come and they tell the master, say, Rabbi, eat. They're urging him to eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Oh, don't you just wish to know what that food is? And then the well-known verse in Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He said this after having fasted for 40 days. Imagine how weak he was. And he was being tempted right there to turn stones into bread, which he had the power to do. You see, what fasting does is it shows you, can you live on the word of God? Do you even want to? Because we can say yes in our heads all day long, but fasting is God's way of saying, prove it. So fast relationally, not religiously. Number two, fast secretly. I know this is intense. I know that this is new for a lot of us. This is convicting to me. But I'm just praying that the Lord will do an amazing, amazing work in all of us and birth a new desire for us to hunger after him in this way. Because you see, all this time you thought, oh, I'm so happy because I'm so full of love for God. Nope, you're so full of food. (laughs) And food can cover over a multitude of yucky feelings. It can and it does. Number two, fast secretly. Matthew 6, 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. Fasting is between you and God. Now this doesn't mean that if someone finds out you're fasting, now it's a waste, now you're in trouble. No. The church in Acts fasted a number of times and people knew about this. Luke knew enough to record it talked about this. What it does mean is that your fasting should not be done to draw attention to yourself and to the fact that you're fasting and trying to impress other people. That's wrong. And so Jesus says, wash your face. Anoint your head when you're fasting. In other words, you're going to feel weak, but don't look like you're feeling weak. It's between you and God. Lastly, fast expectantly. Matthew 6, 18, the last line says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. We can't control God through fasting. Can't do it. David fasted so that his child would be spared, but the child died. Esther and her people prayed, fasted, so that their whole nation would be spared, and they were. We can't control God through fasting, but... We can come to God with great expectation as we fast. Many times in scripture, fasting precedes mighty 
mighty works of God. In Exodus 34, after Moses fasted for 40 days, he comes down from the mountain with the two tablets with the Ten Commandments, which have shaped the human race's understanding of God and of man for 3,500 years now. In Matthew 4, Jesus fasted for 40 days in preparation for the wine of the new covenant as it was beginning to flow freely to the entire world. In Acts 13, the church fasted and the gospel movement exploded throughout the Mediterranean and beyond. And so, will you now fast? Will you? Will you get ready to wage spiritual war in 2017 with us? And and will you expect God to move? You know, you can start with a very simple 24-hour fast where you skip only one meal a day. Here's how you could do it. You could have lunch today. Say at 1.30. You have lunch. And then tonight, you skip dinner. You're going to feel it. But you have reserves in there. You're going to be okay. You go to sleep, and that's going to strengthen you some. And you skip your breakfast tomorrow. And then you have lunch again. Tomorrow. So you had a period of 24 hours without eating, but only skipping one meal a day. And when you start feeling those hunger pangs, you pray and you say to God, I'm waiting for the bridegroom. I'm waiting for the bridegroom, God. I'm after a satisfaction of soul that only you, God, can satisfy. Not food, not anything else. Only you, my God. That's what you do. And that's an easy way for you to start this practice. And then you can move up to a whole day or two or three. But would you fast at some point this month? Do it in preparation as you begin sacrificially loving those three people who don't know Christ at your job or your neighborhood or your family. Do it in preparation so that if we have to call a fast for the church As we're going into an intense season with God, you'll be ready to join arms with us. Jesus said, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Let's pray. Oh God, would you do the miracle that it would be for you to give to birth a hunger in all of us here, a hunger for you like we've never known before, where we're willing to give up something good, food, for something better, you. Would you do that, God? Would you teach us, Father, in a culture, in the 21st century, the first world where we have aisles upon aisles upon aisles of food ready for our consumption, that we do not know what it means to hunger. And we do not know what it means to hunger for you. Would you do this, God? As a church, would you call us to this kind of desire? And we know we're waiting for the bridegroom. We're waiting for him. We, we don't just say it. We mean it. And we understand that the conquest of the cross had spread throughout the world 
not by weapons, but through our mourning and our affliction and our humbling ourselves before you. Oh, Father, let it be. In Christ's name, and for the glory of his return.